Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm pastor here and glad to have you with us. Um, We're going to continue this morning uh, looking at the book of Luke. Uh, if you're new with us, a uh, special welcome. We, we're going to be going through Luke 5 and 6 throughout all of the fall. And uh, we just think it's the most uh, helpful thing that we can do is to look into God's word and see uh, more about him and, and really learn more about ourselves through it. Uh, so that's what uh, this passage is about. We're in verses uh, 27 to 32. We're looking at the, the call of Levi. Uh, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll see what uh, God has for us this morning uh, in this text. So uh, join with me, please. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you, God, that as we come together, Lord, we can come with a full assurance that you are God of heaven and earth. Lord, that you've had the Bible written for that so that we might know you more, so that we might understand ourselves more. And God, we, we know that you are sovereign, and so we pray, Lord. We pray for our, our city and our country. We pray, God, that you would be at work, and Lord, that people would recognize the truth of your word. And Lord, that you would bring a continued peace and healing and restoration in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And I pray, Lord, that some of that would happen this morning, Lord, that as we direct our attention to this, to this moment in time when Jesus, you came and you called a man who was full of sin into obedience to you, I pray, God, that this would be instructive for us, that we would understand more of your, uh, your role in our lives and uh, your role in the world. And so I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you may know this already, but uh, I, one of the things I really enjoy uh, is movies. I love watching movies, all sorts of movies. Um, one of the storylines that I really like is when there is a character that slowly discovers that he or she is destined for some grand heroic role in the world, right? This is like every superhero movie, pretty much, right? Peter Parker gets bitten by a radioactive spider, spends a lot of time figuring out these newfound abilities and then realizing that this actually is a call on his life to, to save, maybe not the world, but the city at first. And it's a, it's a compelling story. Luke Skywalker is, is a character that endures, I think, because of this. Right? He's just a kid from Tatooine, right? <laughs> just a, a regular old moisture farmer. And, and he realizes that he... He has this ability, he, he, he can wield the force, that he's a Jedi, and that he's the answer to the dark side of the force. It's compelling, it's exciting. They kind of messed up the last movie, but otherwise, it's really, really, it's a great story. It's a great character arc, one that inspires us, one that I think resonates with us, because we also love this idea that we are called to, to great things. Well, the life story of Jesus, I think, could be seen as a precursor to those kinds of, of narratives. Um, Jesus is just a kid from Nazareth, right? He's, he's got these abilities and powers, and he has been called to bring an answer to the evil of the world. The difference, of course, is that there isn't a period of time where Jesus kind of figures out who he is, right? There's no, like, montage sequence, right, of him in the forest figuring out he can control squirrels and, and things like that, and then healing his neighbor kids, and he's like, man, I've got this. Man, what could this mean? It's none of that. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he's been called to do. It's just the people around him that slowly grow in their understanding of, of his powers, but also his calling and his purpose. And in our scene today, uh, we get one of the first uh, articulations of this purpose, where Jesus communicates clearly. He gets the opportunity in response to the Pharisees just to say, hey, here, here's why I've come. And it's done within the context of the calling of Levi, which is perfect because Jesus came to save those in sin. 
In fact, that's our big idea. I'm going to give it to you on the front end. It's quite simply that Jesus came to save sinners. So with that in mind, we're going to look to our, to our text, not a long text, but in it we find uh, the, the essence of this call, uh, and we learn more about him and more about us as those who Jesus has came, come to save. So uh, read with me or listen along, uh, beginning in verse 27. Here's God's word to us this morning. After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's God's word to us this morning. Fairly concise, but a lot in there. Uh, we're going to look at two main points, both uh, sort of flowing from this, this main big idea. So here's our first point. Jesus came to save sinners, and everyone is sick with sin. Jesus came to save sinners, and everyone is sick with sin. Uh, this is the main focus of the passage. And it begins fittingly with the call of Levi, who is a wretched and sinful tax collector. We're going to talk a bit more about Levi near the back end of the sermon. But for now, uh, let's note the response, right? So Jesus calls him in verse uh, 27. And in 28, we see that like uh, Peter, James, and John, like we saw a few weeks ago, he also leaves everything and he follows Jesus. And then right after that, he does something different that the fishermen didn't do. He, he throws a party. Right, we see this in verse 29. Uh, Levi made for him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So why did Levi do this? Why throw a party? Well, there's a, probably a bunch of reasons, three main ones that I can think of. Uh, firstly, it was simply a celebration of his newfound faith. This calling of Levi is really a call to faith. Right? He was living a certain way. He was he had certain desires and ideals, things he was living for. And in following Jesus, he was literally leaving all of that behind. But internally, he was also leaving all of those hopes and dreams and turning to Jesus fully. And in that, he found great joy, great hope, great purpose. So he was celebrating that. But also, he wanted to honor Jesus. You see in the text, uh, it says that Levi made him a great feast. So it was honoring to Jesus. To, to come, and he was kind of the, the honored guest, the main guy there. And the third thing is that he wanted all of his tax collector buddies to meet Jesus. You see this for those who come to faith. Man, I got to tell you about this, this new thing in my life, this new direction, this new purpose. I need to tell you about Jesus. That's what he was doing. This party was a, was a God-honoring celebration of the grace that Levi had received. But for the scribes and Pharisees, it, it looked just like a regular gluttonous party, right? Full of sinners. And them seeing Jesus who's supposed to be a man of God. At the center of it, they were, they were very critical. Um, you might be wondering, you know, were they invited to the party? And the answer is, is most certainly not. If you look at the verse 30, it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So more than likely, they were kind of like the nosy neighbor. Right? They were kind of walking by, craning their neck, trying to find out. They, they would never have accepted an invitation to a party like this, but they wanted to know what was going on. And then when they saw it, right, kind of like over the hedge, what are you guys doing over there? They, they were very, they were 
indignant. And so they went not to Jesus, but to his disciples, right? Who were probably hanging around saying, what, what's going on here? Right? You, you're eating with tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't believe it. They're like the, they're like the neighbor on your street that just is upset with everything, right? The kids are playing street hockey at four in the afternoon and they're, they're yelling, there's too much noise, right? They're the, they're the wet blankets of the neighborhood. They haven't been invited. They don't want to be there, but they, are, they can't believe what is going on. But all this criticism, it gives Jesus an opportunity to make his missional purpose clear. And actually, if you look back, Luke has been kind of building up to this moment. Uh, all through Luke 5, there have been um, Jesus' messianic teaching. There's, there's been him healing, healing uh, spiritually and physically. Uh, last week, we saw Jesus say, look, I have the authority to forgive sin. It all leads up to this moment where, where Jesus just gets to say, hey, here's why I've come. You're wondering why I'm hanging out with all the sinners? Because that's why I came. I came to save sinners just, just like these. Look at his words in verses 31 and 32. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So at first it seems as though he's kind of making a distinction between the healthy and sick in humanity, but, but really that's just a, a rhetorical device, an expression. What he really means, of course, is that everyone is sick, but there are those that realize they're sick and those that think that they are healthy. We, we know what this is like, because we do this all the time. Um, just ask any man um, of any age, although it tends to get worse as they get older, how they're feeling physically. And the response will be, I'm feeling fine, healthy as a horse, everything's great. And if you know this man, and you know that things aren't great, you might you know, ask, honey, um, but what about that mole on your neck? Like, it's, it's been changing color. Ah, don't worry about that. It's fine. It's just a, it's a speck. It's a dot. Yeah, but um, when we go for walks, you tend to have pain in your chest, like on the left side of your chest. It's fine. Don't, you always make such a big deal about everything. It's fine. Honey, you've got a gash in your leg. You're working the yard. There's blood all over the... I think I can see your bone through your skin. I'll get a Band-Aid. It's, it's, it's fine. We have this sense that everything is, is fine. We don't want to admit when there's anything wrong with us. And, and we're quick to dismiss that as, as foolish, right? Stubborn. And yet we all know that we tend to react that way as well, especially when it comes to our spiritual health. Before we come to faith, we hardly think of spiritual things. And even after we come to faith, we still tend to assume that, that all is well. Right? I, things are going fine. I, I read my Bible every now and again. I, I pray sometimes. I come on Sunday. Everything's fine. But see, there's a reason that your doctor makes you get tested for things even when you feel fine. And that's because there are many illnesses that can be present in your body and yet you don't yet feel the symptoms. See, back in ancient times, there was really one diagnostic tool for assessing sickness. It was how you felt. If, you, if you're full of pain or discomfort, then probably something's wrong with you. If you're feeling fine, then you're healthy, right? Go work in the fields. Don't, what, what are you worried about? But in our day, of course, we have a whole host of diagnostic tools, things that physicians will use to assess our body, especially as we get older. Right? Your doctor will say, hey, I want you to come in and get some regular blood work. I want you to get your cholesterol tested. Get a mammogram. Get your prostate checked. I want... Do all these tests in the hope that they will be able to identify an illness before it's too late. Before it's ready to kill you. It's a good thing. Did you know that the Bible has a diagnostic tool for assessing spiritual health? It does. It, it's called the law of God. The Ten Commandments. 
the, the statutes, the instructions of God. Look at what Paul says about the law of God in Romans 7.7. He says, Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So his argument there is that human beings, we have a conscience, all of us. We have a sense of right and wrong. But we will never fully understand our sin unless we understand the law of God. In fact, that's why God gave the law. Not to save us, but to make us aware of our spiritual sickness, of our sin. So let me show you how it works. Um, this, these are the Ten Commandments, right? the law of God given through Moses to the, to the people of God. In these Ten Commandments, God is saying, look, this is the right way to live. This, this is the difference between right and wrong. Here are the things that you should do and shouldn't do. You should honor me above all else, right? not make idols, not take my name in vain. You should keep the Sabbath day holy, honor your father and mother, and, and not murder or commit adultery or lie or cheat or steal. Cheating's not really in there, but you, it, it's, it's the moral compass for all of humanity, right? These are the things you do. If you know these things, then you know the difference between right and wrong. And Jesus further explains these things in the New Testament by saying, look, it's not just what you do on the outside, it's also what happens on the inside. So it's not just that you shouldn't commit adultery, but that if you even think lustful thoughts, you you have gone against my command. You're you're doing a, a bad thing, that's sin. So the diagnostic process is really quite simple. It just requires an honest assessment of your life. You just pick one of them and then examine your life in light of it. For example, I could ask, uh, have I ever lied? It says there, you shall not lie. Have I ever lied? And the answer in my case is yes. Yes, I have. There have been times in my life where I have not told the truth, usually for some sort of selfish gain. And so the follow-up question is, well, what does that make me? Well, it makes me a liar makes me a sinner. Have I ever coveted? To covet means to, to want something, desire something that, that's not rightfully yours. And the answer there again is yes. Yeah, there's been a number of times in my life where I've yearned for something that is not rightfully mine, that God hasn't given me, and that I've been envious or jealous or bitter because I don't have that thing. So what does that make me? Well, it makes me a coveter. It makes me a sinner. Have I ever put another God before the God of heaven and earth? There again, the answer is yes. Not just before I came to Christ, but even after. There's many times that in the way that I live my life, I put someone else on the throne of my life. That I live under my own wisdom or my own idea of what's best, that I turn my back on God. So what does that make me? Well, it it makes me a worshiper of false gods. makes me an idolater. makes me a sinner. If you go down through the list, what becomes very, very clear is that for all people everywhere, sin has infected every part of our being. The way that we think, the way that we act. It's the things that we do, but it's also things that we don't do. Right? We, don't, we don't love people the way that we should. We don't show grace and mercy the way that we should. We don't love God the way that we should. The prognosis is very clear. Everyone is sick with sin. And we see this stated in Romans 3. Romans 3.10 where... It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. So listen, if you were in a specialist office and you had had some work done, some tests done, they're sitting there with a the paper in front of them and the doctor says to you, look, we got the test results back and 
I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have, and you fill in the blank, you have a, a malignant tumor in your lung. You have a cancerous growth on your lymph nodes. You have some rare disease of, of, of the blood. What would your questions be? Well, obviously, you'd want to know, Doc, what does this mean? How bad is this? What's, I mean, what treatments are available? Is there any cure? Am I, am I going to die? How long do I have? All of these questions, you, you want to hear, here's what you want to hear. You want to hear, we know how to treat this. You, you want to hear, this is, this is typical. This is typical of this disease. This is a known disease, and we have a known cure. We have a known treatment with a high success rate. What you don't want to hear is, man, we, have, we haven't seen this before, or, or this is... This is a really tough version of this, or we have some experimental techniques that we think might help. See, you walk out of that doctor's office either with hope in the sure treatment that has been offered or with, with a, just a little bit of hope in something that might help. So when it comes to our prognosis of sin, we need, we need to know what's, what's the treatment. Well, two things are clear. Number one, the mortality rate for those with sin is 100%. Everyone infected with sin since the beginning of humanity, has, has come to death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Not just momentary death, but death forever. That's what we find very clearly in the Bible. That, that, those are the consequences of, of sin. It's, it's death. We see it in Romans 3.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the other thing we know for sure is that we have a cure that is 100% effective. That this is not something new. This is not something unplanned or that God had to try to, try to figure out and he's, he's kind of a little bit behind, but he'll figure it out in time. No, this is something that we have a sure cure for. Sin is in the category of polio and smallpox and tetanus and rabies, diseases that used to pose a huge threat to humankind. But now, when those diseases come about, the doctors say, hey, we, we, got, a, we got a vaccine for that. We know how to deal with that. See, Jesus came to save sinners, and he did it. He saved us from sin. He has brought about an effective and 100% foolproof cure. He saved us by living a life that we couldn't live, by by coming into human flesh and, and living the life that we should have lived, and then he saved us by going to the cross and taking on the death that we deserved, the consequences that are rightfully ours. He took it upon himself, absorbing all the wrath of God on himself, then dying, really dying physically, and then coming back to life. His salvation is evident in his his life that he conquered death on our behalf. And then he saved us by offering us the gift of faith that in our belief, we might take on his righteousness and give our sin to him and so that we now have a hope of heaven. We, We have a hope of life instead of death to look forward to. Romans 3.23 says that the rest of it. Firstly, yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So with this sickness, the issue is not the effectiveness of the cure. We're not doubtful about whether this will work. The question is whether we are willing, whether we are willing to recognize that we need treatment. Whether we are willing to come to God and accept what we need in our weakness, in our sin whether we, unlike the Pharisees, would be aware of our need for help. See, I really wanted to hammer this point home, so I went looking for stories of stubborn patients, like medically speaking, and there's a lot of them. There's like these doctor's message boards where they talk about their, their patients who aren't doing what they tell them to do, 
It's really, it's tragic. There's, there's guys there who have the chest pain and their wife tells them for weeks and weeks and they don't go to the doctor until it's too late. And, and they, many of them die of sudden heart attacks. They didn't get the treatment they could have had. There's others who have diabetes and, and lung conditions. They're still smoking a pack a day, eating whatever they want. And when we hear things like that, we just think, man, idiots, fools, right? You're getting what you deserve. Unless they're in our family. And then we're, and then we're brokenhearted. We're pleading with them, right? Please, dad, mom, grandpa, grandma, listen to the doctor, listen. Go and get treatment. Stop smoking that. Stop eating that, please. We, we want more time with you. And in the case of sin, we would say, please, listen to what the Bible is saying. We, we want eternity with you. Won't you at least think about what Jesus is saying? I mean, what is he saying? He's saying that some of us think we're healthy and we're not. He was speaking to the, to the Pharisees and scribes. They, they thought that they were right with God. They thought everything was fine in their lives. But they were full of self-righteousness, which is, which is pride, which is thinking that they're fine without the help of God. And many of us, we, we live like that even after we come to faith. We, we come to faith by grace and then somehow we think we can do it on our own. What Jesus wants for us to realize is that he came to save sinners. And, and it's in our, our awareness of sin that puts us in the right position to receive from him, to receive the, the, the cure, the saving grace that we need. And what we need to understand, though, there's a difference. Um, see, salvation from God is not like a pill that we take. It's not like there's not a treatment. It's not something that we fit into our life. Right? Jesus isn't just a help to our life. He is life for us. Sometimes we get this wrong. There's many people who just think that they can add on some, some Christian principles and some Christian habits, and then, and then they'll be fine. Elvis, uh, famously, I know you're wondering, where's, where's this going to go? Elvis famously wore a, uh, a necklace with both the Star of David, which is a Jewish symbol, and a, and a cross. And when they asked him, you know, why, why do you wear that necklace? He said, and don't worry, I'm not, I'm not going to do my Elvis impression. Um, <laughs> He said, well, I don't want to get kicked out of heaven on a technicality. <laughs> which, which I don't know if that encompasses all of Elvis's faith and what he believes, but what it, I mean, I think that's indicative of how sometimes we think about faith. That if we just checked off the right box, if we just do a couple of things, that then, then we're fine. But what we see here in this scene is, is a better picture. Levi's call to faith was a change in his life. A wholehearted change. That's why when Jesus says that he, he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance means a change of heart. It, that's what faith is. It's trusting. So, so you're, you're living your life a certain way, and then Levi, he totally changed. His heart was changed. His affections were changed. His entire life direction was changed. It was all-encompassing. It wasn't something that he grafted into his life. It was that he realized on his own he didn't even have life. That's why Jesus came. He came to save sinners, and everyone is sick with sin. That's our first point. But some will say, you know, Matt, it's not, it's not that I have a, a struggle recognizing my sin. It's, it's that I don't know that God can really forgive me because of the amount of sin or because of my history. 
I've heard a number of people say, look, if you, if you knew what was true of my life, you know that God, he doesn't want someone like me. But what we see in the calling of Levi is just the opposite. We see just the opposite. This is our second point, that Jesus came to save sinners, and anyone can be saved. Anyone. Let's look back at our, our first couple of verses. This is where Jesus calls Levi. So after this, he went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So question, who is Levi? We're just given one bit of information about him, that he is a tax collector. But this actually tells us quite a bit. Much more than, like, if, if someone were to ask what you do, and you were to tell them, I'm a x-ray technician, I'm an accountant, I'm whatever. That gives a little bit of information about your life, but it doesn't really define you. In this case, we would say that him being a tax collector really does define him because tax collectors were very, very wealthy, but they were despised. Everyone hated them, and for some very good reasons. See, at this time, the Romans were in charge, and they had a system of tax farming. So there were certain regions, and they would assess a certain amount of taxes that were needed from each region, and they would sell off the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. So Levi would have, would have bid on this area of Capernaum, and the Romans said, okay, you get the bid, and so that means that Levi can collect really as much as he wants from all of the different approved uh, duties and tolls, and there were a lot of them. There was a ground tax, income tax, traveling tolls, import duties, he would collect as much as he wanted, and then at the end of the year, he would just pay the Romans the amount that they had agreed upon. He'd keep the rest for himself. So it was a system that was, that was fraught with fraud and corruption. In fact, the tax collectors, they would just shake down everyone they could. Travelers that would come into the city, they would come and say, well, you, gotta, you owe this, 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 and this. They would employ a group of enforcers that would go and rough people up. They didn't pay. That's who Levi is. When we think of Levi, we shouldn't think of like a uh, CRA employee, like Canadian Revenue. That's not, that's not the picture, right? He's not just keeping track of all the taxes that are coming in. He is, he is extorting money from people. A better image, in fact, uh, would be the Jews who collaborated with the Nazis in World War II. Uh, you may not realize this, but in, in the ghettos, when the Nazis would would create these ghettos for all the Jewish population in a city where they would be, waited, they would be waiting to go to the concentration camps. They would appoint, um, usually members of some of the organized crime groups within the Jewish community, they would appoint them as the ghetto police. And so they wouldn't have uniforms, they would have armbands, uh, you can see it there. And they would be responsible for organizing and securing the deportations of those within the ghetto. And also they were supposed to ensure public order. But the truth was that they were, they were very corrupt. And they were violent. There's one man named Anatole Chari uh, who wrote a book about his time in the Lotz ghetto. There's a picture of it there. And in it, he describes the corruption of the ghetto police. He said they would swindle food rations, they would steal goods for themselves, and they would take advantage of women in exchange for food. So if you think this comparison is too extreme, just think for a moment about the harm and the hurt that Levi caused in that community. Think of how many families would be on the brink of starvation because of the amount of taxes he collected, taxes that were far higher than they should have been. Think of how many men would have been unable to work because they'd been beaten up for not paying their taxes. Think of how many people would walk in fear on the streets because of this man and his place in the community. And the thing of it was, he didn't care. Right? He, he didn't care. He was rich. He had the backing of Rome. His future was secure. He knew where his future lay. It lay in the fleecing of the people in his own community. 
until a rabbi came into town and started to talk, started to preach, started healing people, and, and Levi took notice. We don't know to what extent he was aware of Jesus, but what we know is that when Jesus stood in front of him and looked him in the eye and said, follow me, at that moment, that gracious moment, Levi saw himself clearly, probably for the first time. He saw the depth of his sin, and he saw that his only hope was in this man, and he put his faith in him. It's a beautiful picture of salvation, a beautiful picture of each one of us in our sin. And if we're wondering, why did Jesus choose Levi? I mean, if you wanted to start a, a movement that would affect, you know, the, affect the community, the culture in a, in a wide-ranging fashion, if you wanted to be able to have audiences with people and really connect with those around you, why would you get Levi on your team? I mean, wouldn't you get more pushback to have this guy that everyone hates? Of course, we see it in our text. There's pushback immediately from the establishment. You're hanging out with these sinners? How can you be a man of God when you hang out with these guys? But see, that's exactly what Jesus wanted to show everyone. Jesus was making known the depth and power of his salvation. The depth of his salvation because if he can call Levi, if Levi can come to faith, if Levi can find forgiveness, then anyone can be saved. Right? If if Levi experiences the grace of God, then there is no sin that any one of us possesses that is too deep or too dark. If Levi can be called, any one of us can. And even at our very worst. But we also see the power of the salvation of Christ because of the way in which Levi's life changes. Now, many of you know this already, but Levi, in, in coming to faith and being a disciple, his name gets changed. Right? He's actually Matthew. Right? The Matthew that, that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Right? Matthew the the disciple, Matthew, the follower of Jesus. He went from Levi, the the traitor, Levi, the extortionist, Levi, the the greedy and corrupt tax official to to Matthew, the the pastor, the church planter, the saint. And see, for Levi, he, he never saw himself that way. He would never have imagined that his life could have had that kind of impact. Just think now of the impact that Matthew has had on not just that generation, but all of the people since then, over thousands of years. Everyone who has been, been drawn to the Lord by reading the book of Matthew, by hearing his story, by his account of his time with Christ. See, Levi never saw that in his life, but Jesus did. Jesus knew the power of his salvation, knew the depth of it and the power of it, and that even a life like Levi's could be changed so that he would glorify God. So he would be a blessing to the people around him. And so for us, there's a couple of points of application. Number one, the one that's been made, but but we need to really think about this, is that in light of Levi's salvation, no one is too far gone. I mean, do do you believe that? No one is too far gone. Not you, not the people in your life, not the person you've been praying for for decades, not the people on your on your street. In light of Levi's calling and salvation, we can be absolutely sure that God's grace is enough. That, that like it says in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so that should encourage us, especially for those of us who are in, caught in a cycle of sin, where, where we, man, we've come to faith, but there's something that we're just struggling with. And, and again and again, this pattern of thought, this pattern of behavior, and we just think, man, is there any way that I can get past this? Is God even, 
is even gracious to me anymore? Or is he just frustrated with me? When we think about Levi, I mean, just think about what it would have been like for him to follow Jesus after the life he lived. Don't you think there would have been times where he, he just doubted whether he even belonged? Like whether, I mean, he would probably wake up just thinking of the lives that he hurt, the people that, that he affected so negatively, and, and then maybe even having a temptation or patterns of thought that were still like that and thinking, but I don't belong here. I don't belong following Jesus. But of course he did. He did because Jesus himself had, had called him, and the, the same is true for us to this day, that Jesus calls all people in their sin to a life of grace, a life of, of increasing purity and godliness. No one is too far gone. But the second thing we see is that we all have a greater God-glorifying and people-blessing potential than we realize. Not because we are the hero of our story, right? We're not Peter Parker, we're not Luke Skywalker, we're, there's not something in us that Jesus is trying to find. He's like, wow, you've, you've got that. Yes, that's who I need on my team because you can do that or you, can, you have those skills and abilities. not like that, right? Jesus brings us everything that we need. He fills us with everything that we need and then we are equipped to, to be a blessing to the people around us, to glorify God with our lives, to have a purpose that goes far beyond anything of this world. So that should, that should inform the way that we wake up each morning. It should inform the conversations that we have with those around us. See, everyone assumed that Levi was, was dead in his sin. I mean, that he was, he was just something you had to endure in your community, but he was not something that you looked to for any hope. But look at the transformation. Look at what Jesus does when he gets a hold of someone's life. I wanted to have us think about uh, Ephesians 2 because it's a, it's a passage that, that really articulates the nature of faith. But right at the end, um, he, Paul kind of transitions from the nature of your faith to then what the purpose of your faith is. So look here in verses 8 to 10. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that beautiful? What it means is that even before you are saved, God has works waiting for you. There's things in your future that God has set up, uh, people that you're going to meet, situations that you will be in, and because of your faith, you will be able to honor God and be a blessing to people around you. That, that's the nature of everyone who comes to faith, not just those who, who write books of the New Testament, all of us. And so what we see here in the calling of Levi is, is that, yes, Jesus came to save sinners. And everyone is sick with sin. Jesus came to save sinners, and anyone can be saved. And in that salvation, there is a purpose for each one. There is a potential wrapped up in us because of the Spirit of God. We're like a, we're like a battery. I don't know how they work exactly, but there's something about batteries. You, you build them, there's like ion, lithium, something. But see, batteries, you look at them, you can't tell. Right? They look the same, unless you lick them, and then you, you realize which one is full of energy, which one is full of power. See, with us, it's, it's kind of the same. Right? You look around, you, you can't necessarily tell who is truly alive, but in the living of life, the potential is expressed. And in that, God is glorified, and, and we are helped. 
This is a wonderful passage. When we, we see a man who is dead in his sin come to life, but also where we're reminded, Jesus says, look, this is why I came. This is why I'm here. I want this for you and, and everyone you know. So let's pause in prayer, rejoice for who God is, and then we're gonna respond and celebrate what God has done. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you because you have come to save. You have come with the expressed purpose of helping us to see our sickness, helping us to recognize where we are weak, where we need your help. And Jesus, I thank you because you did everything necessary for us to be truly cured from our sin. And God, I pray, I pray for those here who haven't yet come to that realization. I pray, Jesus, that today would be a day where they come closer, where they have greater questions or greater insight into themselves and into the, the true hope that they need. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who've come to, to faith, I pray, Lord, you'd help us also to see that your grace endures even through, the, even through those times where we slide back into sin, even through those times of doubt, even through those times where we, we feel like we don't even belong as part of your family. Jesus, help us to remember that in Levi, we see the truth of your grace, that it is deep and it is powerful. And I pray, Lord, that we would also see our lives as, as ones that are full of, of God-glorifying potential. Lord, not that we are gonna make much of ourselves, we wanna make much of you. And we want to be a blessing to those around us. And so I pray, Lord, that that would be true for us this very week. And that in that you would be pleased. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.